Uh, my name is Ronald Dilla Jr., and I'm a writer, director, actor, and producer. I have been acting since I was 12 years old, and everything that I do spawned from my love of acting. Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewan and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now, let's get started with this episode. I've been writing since uh, high school. I've been directing since college, and I've been producing independently since 2008. My background is theater. I grew up in the theater, so I come back from not having microphones, having to enunciate and articulate, being in the theater and raising your voice so they can hear you in the back, you know, all the way in the back. And uh, my first two productions were actually theater productions that I wrote, produced, directed, and also acted in it because uh, being in Richmond, Virginia, uh, they were doing a lot of different productions that were based in the 1800s. And I felt like those stories were being well represented. But I wanted to see more about stories about today, about who we are, why we do some of the things that we that we do. And what's happened is I have a trend now of tackling some very, very tough um subject matters. My first play was called I Deserve Better. It dealt with domestic violence. Now, while I have not been a, a victim or, or have seen domestic violence growing up, uh, it became when I was uh, back in the middle school, I was on a school bus. And I remember this guy, this this kid asked this girl for her number and she didn't want to give it to him. And he basically lunged at her like that. And I didn't understand where that aggression came from. And that was the spawn of it. And when I was in high school, I started writing this uh, play called What Kind of Love Is This, which eventually became I Deserve Better. And the research that I found out is that uh, at the time, 70 percent of men who abuse women saw growing up from someone. And it was just really wanted to tackle exactly what what was behind that aggressor. And I, I came up with a production that that focused on three things. Number one, the perspective of the abused. Then also the perspective of the abuser, whether right or wrong, I do feel like it's important if you can understand where a person does a particular thing, you can kind of hopefully understand a way to probably help them. And then it was a third perspective, which was the father trying to discipline his son, which his son feels like it's very, very insulting because he taught his son how to be that way. So that's kind of uh, how I got started and kind of how I kicked off producing specifically independently. Thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. So where exactly were you born? Do you want to take us a little bit to your background, where you grew up? Uh, we're interested in your, in your story. Uh, okay. And like, where did you grow up in your young adolescent years? Uh, yes, I'm born and raised in uh, Petersburg, Virginia. I still reside in Virginia. Now, Petersburg, Virginia is the home of NBA great legend uh, Moses Malone, uh, an actor named Blair Underwood, a NBA basketball player by the name of Frank Mason, uh, also an R&B singer named Trey Songs. All of these uh, individuals resided and were born and bred in Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, born in Petersburg, went to Petersburg High School, graduated from Petersburg High School, and lived there up until about 2004 when I moved to Richmond, Virginia, which is where I currently reside uh, right now. And in my childhood, uh, Grew up with knowing who my father was, but he was he was there, but he wasn't there. You know, I have an older brother and a younger sister and a very, very strong mother. Uh, my mother, she actually worked 32 years in the Department of Corrections, DOC. And I'm actually uh, developing a television show inspired by her life and, you know, kind of what she went through, because she's someone who the way the way her her focus was to have these responsibilities and to be so focused and to be so devoted to her family is truly inspiring the love that she gave us and and the lessons that she taught us uh have just you know you just can't forget those and just her dedication and all that she sacrificed for you know i could never repay her you know for everything 
everything that she's done for me and I think for, for us as a family as well. Thank you so much for that. There is something that touched me a little bit when you were doing the explanation just now. And of course, it's up to you. I'm just going to ask you anyway because I just do questioning. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. You say your father was there, but he wasn't there. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that uh, my father wasn't interested in, in being a father. I mean, he was somebody who was there. He was working. He was he was at the house, but didn't particularly spend a lot of time. I mean, for for example, he loved fishing. I never was into fishing, so I would never really go with him. I mean, there were times he would take me out, but it wasn't a situation where he would sit down and have conversations, made particular time. See, one of the things that our, our mother did was she spent time with us collectively as a group, and she would spend time with us individually. She would do things that, you know, we were interested in or she would make sure she was a group. She did everything she could. Uh, she had individual talks with us. She gave us all the time that she could, which was more than enough, because in that situation, a lot of times she had to be at work, but she still made time. And this is after and this is her going, actually going back to school, uh, took her 20 years to finish school, working full time in Department of Corrections and making time to spend time with us collectively as children and individually. I mean, you know, <laughs> again, uh, what she did, but my father, he, he just wasn't, he just wasn't interested in it. I don't have a lot of bad things to say about him because he just pretty much left me alone. You know, didn't yell at me, did not abuse me. Didn't, he just, he, he just wasn't there. He just was interested in on his off time. He was interested in, in, you know, kind of being in the streets. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the, for sharing that. At least that is a human part of, of the person behind the camera. And that is important for us. Now, when you were growing up, I'm still like sort of there. Uh, what kind of conversations sort of dominate your time like um, because now we are coming to understand mm -hmm. why are you doing what you are doing so i'm trying to like ask yeah what were, what were the kind of conversation that occupy your mind with your friends what mm -hmm. did you talk about what were the things that that you love to talk about that you spend your time on with your friends well with my friends talking about for them it was mostly always you know kind of um it was music and it was sports and occasionally it was movies but i have to say that what inspired me as far as from from an artistic perspective is watching television watching movies my mother and i our biggest bond has always been watching television shows or watching films and then having discussion about them one of the things that she did that i really appreciate she would show us some tough movies it would be supervised like a boy in the hood or men's society she took us to the movie to see malcolm x and she would show us these hard-hitting movies as children and then she would have a conversation with us so she and it could, so of course if you see something that was if you saw vulgarity or if you saw something that was um kind of on the edge she would let us know she would explain it to us also let us know that was not acceptable but she would also have a conversation to, for us to think about why certain things happen like if you take the movie juice for example okay where you know where the situations go wrong how did it get to this situation you know you know what would you do in that situation because the fact that she worked at the department of corrections you know and she was saying okay i don't want my children ever to wind up here and I know how serious this is. And, you know, 15 seconds of you, you know, losing it, you losing your temper for a second could cost you 15 years. So it was always important for her to impress upon that on us. So watching these different movies and even going back and watching things like Beverly Hills Cop and just seeing Eddie Murphy or Trading Places or just seeing, the you know, Toy Soldiers or all of these different, you know, these different films just had an effect on me. Another reason is because I was someone who was pretty much of a shy, had a shy nature. So it made more sense trying to be a character, being someone else than being myself. Cause I still didn't know who I was, you know, hadn't developed particularly a personality. I mean, I, I don't really feel like I could put a joke together until I got to high school. So when I saw films specifically and saw these characters, or I saw different cartoons and I saw all of these different vibing characters, it gave me a way of an, of an escape.
And I think that's kind of how I started making the correlation. So once I understood that acting was where it was, what they were doing, that's kind of what I wanted to do. And I think that was the motivation behind it. That's very interesting. In fact, I was, I was like thinking in my mind that I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. when was the moment you actually realized that film was your thing? Because now you, you actually have already explained that now. That is very important. Mm-hmm. That, that, that moment, that is, that is very clear, very important. Okay, now I'm curious about another thing before we go into what you specifically do in terms of maybe naming your films just now. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a message that run across your film? Is there something that you want to communicate out to the people through your storytelling, using film, using uh, the visual representation as it were? It's interesting because I know that when it comes to the television shows that I've, de- that I've developed, it's kind of different from my films. My films have been an exploration. I write things that fascinate me. And being independent, I've written stories that fascinate me. And the overall theme is I want people to be able to take a look at it and have, and basically think about it for themselves. I want them to take a look at themselves. See, the thing is this. I believe it is better to learn a lesson from a fictional character that hopefully can basically breathe uh, new life into you. For example... I deserve better about domestic violence. And the, the, and the best compliment I got on that play was there was a couple who got the DVD and they watched it. And the, the, the husband looked at it and was like, oh, my God, this guy is terrible. Was I anything like that? And his wife looked at him and says, you were just like that because he was. But he had made a transition to the point where he couldn't even recognize himself from what he used to be. And I don't know if that could have, you know, been any more clear. So I, I just want, I want things that are going to, uh, for my films, I, I want them to draw conversation. I want people to take a look at themselves in a situation where in a non-judgmental way. I want them to take in the production and then think about it. You know, what does this mean to me? Is there something I can take from this? You know, can I make myself better through that? And if they can, they can silently make that transition where they don't have to be embarrassed. Nobody has to know, but they can have that situation with themselves because we live in a time where a lot of people, unfortunately, they might treat you wrong, but they don't want to hear about it. You know, you, you make it sound like I was a terrible person. Well, I mean, you did some terrible things over the last week. So, I mean, I'm not saying you're a terrible person, but, you know, don't do the acts and then don't want to you know, have, don't talk about it. You know, you, you can't have it both ways. You know, that's kind of how I look at it. So, uh, for example, if you look at a monster, a monster is a situation I wrote that. Uh, what fascinated me about that, because it's a very hard subject matter, was how people, when they hear about horrible things happen, a lot of people, the first thing they say is, how come they didn't get help? And I want, I want people to really think about it. If someone came to you with this particular issue, would you help them? And here's the thing. This is one of the, this is the hardest thing imaginable. So if you, so this is something where if someone really came to you, and they had not committed the act, and they came to you for help, would you help them? Because it's easy to sit back and talk about why didn't they get help after that happened, but would you be invested in it? And it's a very tough question to answer, but it's something to really, really think about. You know, before people talk about somebody getting help, would you be the person to help them? And that's what I'm hoping that people would inspire. And really, I really, really want to inspire both sets of minds to open their minds up to hopefully get a resolution because I think that they are childhoods at stake. Now I'll just leave it at that. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I'm looking at this game now where you are really interested in the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not like you are trying to feed the people. What is your think? Yeah. You're just tearing it up. Let's talk. No, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you also sort of explain 
the kind of relationship that you have with your mother, yeah. when she will bring out maybe some tough theme, I say, let's watch. There are hard argument there, but let's talk about it. The question is not really that she want to force it on you, but mm -hmm. she wants you to talk. Mm -hmm. Let's talk. Yeah. So now, I see you play this role now as a storyteller, mm -hmm. as someone who is telling story. But you are seeing your role now as the one who is not like you are telling people this is what is wrong, this is what is right. But you are bringing the information out because you are interested in the conversation. Let's mm -hmm. talk about it. Mm -hmm. How does that make you feel? Uh, it makes it makes me feel. I mean, it it really depends on you know how people are received and and if we if we did our job pretty much. Uh, for example, I come from the Ridley Scott School of, of Filmmaking. I'm a huge Ridley Scott fan because of, particularly because I'm a fan of his work, but also of how he prepares himself. Uh, one of the things that he did that breathed life into me was you know shooting with multiple cameras because I deal with things that are high drama, that these are these are scenes that one may not, can't do multiple times. You don't want to exhaust the actor. So by having, by planning to shoot two camera for a lot of these uh, shots, what I'm gonna do is you can basically, uh, if somebody does something amazing and now you have it on both actors, you, you caught it, you know? And it also gives you an opportunity to save time in the location that you're working with. It allows you to get more done, you know, in a small amount of time, because uh, although I admire David Fincher, who will do, you know, 50 takes, but he has the time to do that a lot of times. You know, for me, a lot of times I need to have rehearsals before we go into location to shoot. I need to give the actor every opportunity, every shot of the apple, and I'm not gonna rush it, but at the same time, I have to be very, very efficient in the way that I do that. But going back to my mother, uh, when she was talking to us about these films, it was because she wanted, to, she understood, I understand now that what she was trying to let us know was, you have to find a way to deal with your feelings and emotions. And it cannot be balling up your fist and hitting somebody. It can't be lashing out. Because when you have the words to express what's on your mind and you can do that verbally, you can find an outlet that can suppress you, that you can basically get out your frustrations without having to channel it in, a, in, a, in another, in another um, non-productive way. Now, that is something also that you may mention that I find sort of um, very interesting and very important in the entire episode of storytelling, which is emotion. Mm -hmm. Because I've watched the thrillers of your film. I've taken the time to actually look at them. I see that there's a high emotional play that is going on there. Mm -hmm. Also, maybe because of the type of story that you tell, they mm -hmm. are very powerful and very moving. Thank you. In, in that you cannot watch it and not feel something. Mm -hmm. That is already something powerful there. So the question is, how do you employ emotion in your storytelling? To, to me, it has to be the truth of the scene. Because uh, when I made these films, it was kind of my last hurrah because I had kind of given up on my dream. Um, I had said I had given up on it and um, I got inspired again. And I said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to basically put it all back into it. And it wasn't about fame. It wasn't about getting discovered. It was about craft. It was about it was about the best writing, the best directing, the best acting, the best producing that I could actually do. Because anytime I do a film, I'm shooting for Warner Brothers. I'm shooting for Paramount Pictures. Now, whether we achieve that or not, but that that that's the goal. And for me, it's about that's where the fascination for me and my writing comes in, because I say that I take a subject and if the subject takes me from idea to writing to completion to green light in the project then that means that it gets it keeps me enough i have a fire that's burning for it that means that i really want to tell this story and it comes into my fascination as to okay here's a situation that i want to see play out and here's what i want the audience to kind of keep in mind 
I'm not trying to tell them what to do. I'm not trying to tell them what they're supposed to, but I really want them to think about these things going, you know, going back and forth. For example, the color in your eyes, the color in your eyes is a situation where when people talk about uh, racism or people who are racist, the one question I never hear is, you know, why do you have this view? Now, here's the thing. If someone had a father who just about everything he taught his son was correct. And one of the things that he taught his son was uh, that that blacks were terrible or that they were subclass citizens or that they were beneath you. If everything else they told their son had become right, would the son doubt that his father was correct? Would his son even think about it? And for a lot of people who don't like, you know, African-Americans or black people, do they even know why? Can they even articulate it? And that's a question I've never heard asked before. But we examine that subject here and you see some inconsistencies from the beginning. But at the same time, but then also for people who've taken this stance, if they don't know why they don't like a particular race or color or creed, do they have the courage to do the self-exploration, to do the work, to ask themselves that tough question? And if they come up with the fact they don't have an answer, do they have the courage to change? Because I personally believe that that interracial baby and he's a part of your family. What do you do? You know, it, it's really tough to look at an adorable baby boy or baby a little girl and not like them. I mean, maybe some people do. But um, and again, I don't have any stats to to back that up. But I do believe that that's probably done a lot to hopefully mend hearts. But I really want people to look at the film and really ask themselves, you know, if I don't like this particular uh, if I don't like this particular ethnicity. Can I tell you why? Because to me, it's not a color thing. I'm very aware of color and how people see that, and how people may see me. But to me, uh, if you're cool, you're cool. If you are a jerk off, you're a jerk off. If you're a mean person, you're a mean person. You know, it, it, that's just kind of how I look at it. I'm very aware of how the world works, but that's not particularly how I work. But I'm very, very conscious of what's going on around me. So. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, you see, I'm going to go back again to what we were saying before, which is okay. the let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. And now, look at the United States, for example, mm -hmm. which have this deep uh, story of uh, of racism, of discrimination, of this systemic injustice. Mm -hmm. That is what I want, I want to call it now. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes people don't want to talk about it. They believe that they already know what it is, mm -hmm. but they don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. But you are ready to face it. So when you take out argument like this, for example, look at a policeman sitting on the neck of a human being until the person dies. Mm -hmm. Can't we talk about it in like really take away the color in it, take away the prejudice in it, and then look at the event that have really happened. Mm -hmm. This is the citizen of the United States. Mm -hmm. Another citizen of the United States is sitting on his neck until he dies. Yeah. How do we manage to justify this? Can we face this kind of argument without being judgmental, without may maybe making the conclusion before we even enter into the conversation? Mm -hmm. How do we do this? Well, you know, this is this is this is basis of a, of a film that I have called "When We Pray on Them." When you talk about the injustices, is that one of the things that I never ever hear mentioned or ever said is, how would you feel if it happened to you? If we think about uh, the film A Time to Kill, 
written by John Grissom uh, in the film, brilliantly portrayed, you know, first of all, all-star cast. Matthew McConaughey, toward the end of the film, when he describes the little girl who's basically being raped and being, uh, and being hung up, and then at the end of the story, he says, imagine that girl is white. You see how everything pretty much changed there. But see, I want to go a different route. For me, it's a situation where it shouldn't be, it shouldn't matter whether it's black, white, or any other color. It should be about the fact that it's a life. And it should be about, it should be about the fact that, you know, this particular thing was wrong. You know, now on, but now the fact of the matter is this is happening to a lot of black men, to a lot of black people, you know, and, and to me, there should be a zero tolerance for it. And for me, when you listen to a lot of people who are talking about it, the things they don't say is, how would you feel if it happened to you? When people try to sit here and justify, oh, he moved, he did this, he did that. If this was your father, if this was your brother, your son, your nephew, how would you feel? Because see, everything's different when you're parked in someone else's driveway. Because if they have no particular care for the people that are being slain, it's going to be very difficult for them to be sympathetic, for them to be optimistic. And I really believe there's a lot of money to be made when you're sitting on a channel, just keep talking about the issues. If you're someone who looks like me or looks like someone else, do you really want to ask the person, how do you feel that this was you and you're another ethnicity? Because that changed the whole conversation. That now puts it into the fact, oh, my God. I never thought about my uncle being slain. I never thought about that because for you, it's not a reality. For us, it is. And it shouldn't be about black or white. It should be about a life. It should be about a life mattering. But the lives aren't mattering because it keeps on happening. And it keeps on happening. And, and when we pray on them is a film that bears the question is that if this, if you did this to someone else and there was a chance it would happen to you within 24 hours, would you still do it? I mean, if there are real consequences, is this behavior going to keep on being happening? If your life is on the line, would you continue to do it? Would you feel so superior? Would you act so high and mighty? And that's a question that if you ask that question, I believe it stops a lot of the conversation. It takes our conversation and makes it 10 minutes. It takes a lot of it, it, it might be very bad for business because it can end the conversation. So those are things that I want think of the people to think about it, because when you think about a lot of when you think about a lot of wars that have happened, a lot of wars that have happened over the years have been because one set of group of people said we're not going to keep taking this and we're going to do something about it. Now, you don't want to go to that far, but if if this if this were if this were Irish people, if this were Asian people, if this were, um, you know, if this were Brazilian people, if this were European people, how many how long are you going to sit back and watch people being killed before you do something about it? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. And for people from for artists like you. Uh, who have the courage to be able to take up argument like this, which is society really do need to face. Because we cannot pretend that the situation will solve itself. It will never happen. It will be solved by people. Because these are not natural occurrence. Mm -hmm. These are not natural that things should be like this. Because like, like I've often said here, because I've interviewed a lot of people from the U.S., both uh, lecturers and uh, commentators and artists, mm -hmm. And the question I've often find difficult sometimes is 
why do we allow things like this to happen? Because it is not right. It is not just. It's not right. It's not just. But also think about, I think a, a, a one big reason it happens is because it's one thing to unite and march in the streets. It's another thing to take action. And for a lot of people, I don't know if, who wants to be in harm's way? For example, look at what happened with Colin Kaepernick for just taking a knee. He did a, he did a nonviolent silent protest and he was ostracized. And he basically was, he was a great quarterback, could still be in the NFL playing. But, but, but look, look at, he took a stand just because he said, I don't think this is right. And this is about this. And the American flag, which we talk about freedom, we talk about people's rights, which means he has a right to express himself and kneel. Didn't do anything to anybody. And look at how he was ostracized. People see the example and say, if it could happen to him, what could they do to me? This man at one point was making millions of dollars. I make hundreds of dollars. So the example that was made out of him, it probably gives a lot of people cause. Because here's the thing, you have, it takes a lot to stand up and have the courage to stand up to do what Malcolm X did, to do what Martin Luther King did. The, you, the, if you look at the, the, the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, back when Dr. King was, was alive, and it took a lot for those people to get up for all those days and walk to work, the dedication. It took a lot to do that. So you have to really, really, really have a strong united front to continue to do something like that or take a stand. And I believe we live in a time where a lot of people want other people to take a stand. They're looking for someone to be a leader because they don't want to be a leader themselves because of what it may cost them. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And freedom is costly. If you are not ready to pay the price, then you don't deserve to be free. <laughs> because when you are free, mm -hmm. you're, you, it's not over. You need to continue to maintain the freedom. It's like you said, this is my boundary. Uh -huh. Where, for you to be able to maintain the boundary, you are going to pay for it. It's not free forever. Well, no, right. it, it, no, it's not. But I mean, at the same time, you have we we live in the world where, where I mean, cowards beget cowards, and people can stand up for something. They can be totally right, and then people do things like call and threaten them, may vandalize their house, may burn down their house. You know, I mean, and then think about online. Now, cowards online more than ever. People will just hide behind their Twitter and make all these comments without even getting all the information. I mean, when you think about when you think about journalism, real journalism, a lot of people will sit here and take a soundbite and listen to something. They'll never ask themselves, what was the whole conversation like? People don't care. You know, so people are going to really have to care about more than themselves. And understand that when you have a united front. That are that are that that stand together, that will not be moved, that's when you're going to make a lot of change. It's like we're not we're just not going to take this anymore. And I do understand how difficult that is because it only takes an example to be made out of a few people to get a lot of people to 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 scour. And I know a lot of people may look listen to this and be like, what are you talking about? People are protest. Yes, people are protesting, people are standing up, people are having their voices heard. But if the th if these things continue to keep happening, is there time for a different approach? Is that all I'm asking? Because for me, when George Floyd was killed, 
that's when I had to write, I had to do this film when we pray on them. I, I just had to. And for me, I felt like doing this film would be, I could contribute more doing the film than I could be in out protesting in the streets because I want people to think about a life being worth a life, regardless of the color of that life. That's what I want people to get out of that. And I, cause I, I have no desire for nothing else than, than harmony. You know, but I do realize even working, even working in, in, you know, working in an environment, I do understand that there are, you know, there's racism, that there is sexism and there's favoritism. And me personally, I think I've seen more favoritism in the workplace than I have seen racism. You know, does it exist? Absolutely. And it's definitely out there. You know, just like, for example, when I sit down to talk to a network executive about one of my television shows, listen, if they look at me as black or that's I can't help what their perception is of me. But when I start talking one way or the other, you're going to realize somebody serious sit down here. Whether you like me, dislike me, you're going to realize that I have something to say. I've done my research and I can do the job. Whatever you do is out of my hands, but it's my job to come in ready. It's my job to have the passion. It's my job to have done the research. And that's all that I can control. That's powerful. And that is really all you really can control. You don't need to control other people. You need to control you and what come out of you. Absolutely. What come out of your machine. This is what you are projecting. I like that. I like that. Absolutely. And then, and then for a lot of creators who who want to do this, I take this craft very, very seriously. All right. And I want your best. I, I don't want your half attempt. I want your best because I'm giving you my best. I'm giving you all I got. I'm not leaving nothing on the table. There's no sandbagging. You know, I'm giving you everything that I got and, uh, and I'm doing the best that I can and I'm doing it all independently. Like, for example, when I see a lot of filmmakers and they have a GoFundMe campaign, nothing wrong with crowdfunding. But I want to know how much of your money are you putting up? You know, are you are you going are you going to go to Jamaica on vacation today and you trying to cut, you know, or how much are you how, how much skin do you have invested in the game? And not, and then also for a lot of filmmakers, one thing I would say is that sometimes there are filmmakers who want to do the project tomorrow. And I think that if you, what you really want to do is to plan it out. Because when you think about Warner Brothers doing a Harry Potter film, did they do that? Say, we're just going to do this three months from now. Or did they plan it out? You know, so I know you didn't ask me about that, but that's just one message that I have for filmmakers. One, I want your best. And number two, you know, plan everything out as best you can. I, I try to, everything I do, I try to live by a creed. If you stay ready, you never have to get ready. And if it's done, it doesn't have to get done. If you ask me to do something, if I can do it right now, I'm going to get it right now. Because my word means a lot to me. And also, you know, the, the more things you check off your list, it, it, it leaves less for you to forget something. You ever thought about doing something and you forget about it and then... I didn't hear it. All right, all right. <laughs> what I was saying, what I was saying that when you present this argument, which are really vital and sometimes can be really harsh sometimes mm -hmm. and hard as it were, mm -hmm. what is the reaction of the people? What do they feel? What do you sample as a kind of reaction from the people? It, de it depends who it depends who sees it. You know, I know that for any of the film festivals that we took in the films to, they were very well received. Uh, I mean, I've been fortunate. We were really blessed that between the four films, we got 240 selections uh, domestic and internationally in different film festivals. For example, I think that A Monster was the least selected film in film festival, but won the most awards. And the first war, I was going to stop entering into film festivals, a monster specifically, until we won Hong Kong. Our first award we won in Hong Kong. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, 
Oh, okay. Oh, because you know this is somewhere totally that's that's to, that's that's not the feeling that I'm getting from these films is that people are enjoying them. They give them something to think about, and they've been very very well received, which I couldn't be happier about. You know, that that's great. So if you were to say maybe this is your your best film because of maybe the impute that you put into the film because of the reaction of the people, which one would you say is your best film in in your career? The one that you have produced. If I have to say which one is my best film, I want to have to say is When We Pray On Them. When We Pray On Them is the last film that we did. And um, I would say, well, I would have to say When We Pray On Them in a Monster because uh, the cast of both of those films, uh, everybody that I worked with on all four films were phenomenal. But the specifically, like the a monster, the two ladies that work with me, Shalandis Willis-Smith and, um, and Rhonda Jackson-Smith, the way these ladies in rehearsal just took over and the way they just, they were so into it. And I got to the point where I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, and I'm directing and I didn't have to do anything. I just sat back and they just, they, they went to work and they were such a, and, and they understood the seriousness of, of, of the film. They weren't afraid of it. They embraced it. They were actually honored to be in it. And I mean, I, I thank those ladies so, so much for their hard work. And when we pray on them, I know that that could be a, uh, that's a, a, it's a subject where it was needed. All, all the cast members understood the journey that we needed. They were excited about the rehearsal that we did. Uh, they were happy to shoot. We actually got a chance to shoot in a live, uh, in a live jail. Uh, so that was tremendous. So we got a chance to shoot on location. And th those two other two films that I would say are the best. Uh, if I if I had to put on it, and I only say the best because of how they've been received, you know, basically in film festivals and and for its reaction, and I'm only saying that based off of the results of that. All right, what we pray on them. Mm -hmm. What is the central message of that film that for people who have not seen it yet, so at mm -hmm. least they can go to see it. But mm -hmm. sort of a kind of a little spoiler. Mm -hmm. What is the central message that you want to communicate to the people through that film? Uh, is that is that number one? How would you feel if this happened to your family member, regardless of uh, of what uh, race or color or creed that you are? Uh, and the second thing is is that if you were a police officer and you killed an unarmed black man, if you knew that you would be you will be killed in the next 24 hours. Would you still pull the trigger? You know that because, and I'm not trying to incite any violence, but if that was a real possibility, that changes a lot. And the whole being killed in 24 hours represents consequences, whether it's going to jail, whether it's being killed, whether whatever it is, if there were consequences to doing this, would it continue to happen? And that's the central message that I want people to think about when you think, look at when we pray on them. I wanted to spend some time there a little bit. Mm -hmm. The consequences. Mm -hmm. I remember I've talked to uh, a writer uh, in the U.S., of course. Then we were looking at the, the situation that happened both in Buffalo and mm -hmm. also uh, the one that have, because it have happened too many times that you can't even count it. Mm -hmm. So I was saying maybe it continues to happen because there are no consequences. Mm -hmm. So that is a question. What? Why are there no consequences? Because now, if somebody uh, have gone around and start shooting white people, I believe that there will be consequences. I, I think that there'll be consequences before lunch. <laughs> so, you know, th there will definitely be consequences. And and to me, now here's, now here's the thing. Um the first thing is that is this listen that all police officers are, are not bad because to me in virginia uh have i had some racial profiling yeah i have 
But for the most part, you know, I haven't had the same uh, issues with police officers that we're seeing in, you know, all over the world. You know, that has not happened to me. I haven't been a victim of that. I even had a woman say, she said to me one time, which was, I couldn't believe it. She said, well, Ron, if this has, if you haven't been affected by this, why you, why do you care? And I was like, why do I care? I care because it can happen to me just like it can't happen to any of the, of these other black men. You know, there is nothing special about me that I can't be uh, succumb to the same treatment, unfortunately. Now, why is there no consequences? Um, I don't know. I, I think because the, it, it feels like there's no consequences because they can do this and nothing really happens. It seems like it's, it's no big deal. Now, now, people may say, no big deal. What do you mean? What I mean is this. When these things happen, a lot of people talk about it. They try to get the mother and put her to, to, to calm people down. And then it's just time to the next person that, that gets killed. So nothing happens means that, that there is no incentive to stop. I mean, yeah, there's an outpouring. Yes, people. And is it making some progress? I, can't, I have to say it is making some progress. But we need more progress because All right. the message. Because that, that, that part of the progress, mm -hmm. I, I like you to expand on that. Okay. Now let's look at the the United States okay. uh, law enforcement agency. You no, know? mm -hmm. I I want to say what I've always said before. Okay. That this is one of the most trained in the world. They are one of the most resourced okay. in the world. Okay. They have the resources. You can't stand there and tell me they don't have the resources to be able to police their citizens. Mm -hmm. They do have it. They do have the legal backing. So are they really unable to arrest an individual so that for this reason, they need to shoot the individual and then bring a dead person to the law court? I want you to help me understand that. Well, I think, well, if you're talking about resources in Beverly Hills, absolutely they have those. But do they have those for the entire city of Detroit? You know, do they have those for the entire city of Chicago? Can we honestly say that you have that you get the same that you can get the same recruitment class of police for those areas that you would get probably in a Manhattan, that you would get in a Beverly Hills, that you would get in a San Francisco? Oh, uh, you know, so that so that question I don't know. What I do know is that the God complex is real. For some people, feel like you know I am the law. You do what I say. And if somebody has a hidden agenda, it is a way to mask it. And if you are a police officer, is it a possibility that you have to ride with the blue? Because if you're not with the blue, then who are you with? So that could probably put a lot of officers in compromising position because for them, if they if they do something against it and they looked up upon their 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 turn against their brother, then now what is their life going to be like? So are there some compromising uh, situations they have to make within themselves? Because, again, again, it's easy to stand out. It's easy to speak up. But what consequences are they going to go through? Now, I'm not saying any of this is right. But when you ask that question, you have to look at it on all sectors. Because it, are there people who have stood against the police um, as a policeman and said that something was wrong and got ostracized? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what's going to happen, have to, something's going to have to happen where they have no choice but to do that, you know, and they're going to have to what call. What do you mean they have no choice? They have to do that and do what? Uh, to make the changes. They're going to have to be some consequences. They're going to have to come down All right. to affect the changes. As simple as that. But the question is, does anybody want those consequences? 
because the powers that be, like you said, for okay, for example, I use this and when we pray on them. <clears throat> oh my god, um, the Black Panther Party. When the Black Panther Party showed up into at the in Congress with those guns, they immediately uh put a ban to the law immediately. They took immediate effect. Like I said, I have to go back um uh, because it escapes me right now. But when you look at the Black Panther Party and um in California, their right, you know, rights to bear arms, there was an amendment made to that, specifically, in my opinion, because of the Black Panther Party to you know exercising their rights to bear arms. Not only exercising their right to bear arms, but also having the education behind what they could do and what they couldn't do. And they could recite them, you know, on site. And immediately there was an amendment made to the law. So they didn't wait. They didn't wait for that. Okay, so to me, it's something that could be done. But it's almost like if every time somebody's killed and you talk about a little bit and it goes away and somebody else gets killed. Where's the motivation to change it? It doesn't seem like there is one. So, <laughs> yeah, it's sad, but yeah, that is how it appears. Mm-hmm. In, in that, I, I think um, it, it's like um, the woman who has violated a number of times by a certain man, and this woman think that her freedom is going to come from this man because maybe this man suddenly is going to realize one day that ah, I have violated her enough. Now I'm going to set her free, but that is not how freedom works. Freedom doesn't work like that. Freedom works by you demanding it. And of course, demanding it meaning be ready to pay the consequences also. Well, You cannot expect the person who is violating you mm-hmm. to set you free. It, it, the likelihood is not going to be there. Well, you can't, Well, you know, I can't say that people aren't demanding. I, I really can't say that. When I think about all the... Pro, like, it takes a lot for people to take the streets the way they do. And I want to make sure that I'm not undercutting that. I'm not demeaning that. Because there's a lot of people that's out there protesting in the streets, people of all different colors. And I think it'll be really disrespectful for me to not recognize that. Then they are demanding that. But I think it, I think that what's going to have to happen ultimately is that the people that are in charge, if they're voted in, they get voted out. You know, if the hiring was a specific exclusive club, it's time for a new club. And demanding that and focusing on that will bring a lot about a real change. So I think that's one of the things that has to be done because the people that are in the position that are put in the position, if they're taken out of the position and someone else comes in there and does it a different way, that's a way to make a lot of, a lot of change, a lot of headway, a lot of headway in a small amount of time. Or also if it's become, if, if you bring in different, if you bring in different laws or you're making different um, charges that are going to be handled with, with the police, for example, they say that anytime that they discharge a round, you have to justify, you know, the means for shooting that, you know, for using that, right? Now that wasn't always that wasn't always in procedure. You know, so that if they are killing if they're killing people, there needs to be specific regulation regarding that. Because the way that they kill, like when you when somebody's running away from you, just shoot them in the back. I mean, to me, that's a, that, that that that's it's like handing the cookie jar. Like, what 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 more do you need to know from that? You know, and then also, if they are doing something about this, it needs to be more publicly um, recognized. We need to hear more about it. It needs not to be swept underneath the rug. So, all right, now let's let look at uh, the community. Mm-hmm. And when, when we say demanding, mm, at the option, all options on the table in terms of um, what they really must do in order for them to be respected in the system. Mm-hmm. Because I repeat again, we are not going to expect that the person who is violating you certainly set you free. It's not going to happen. 
Mm-hmm. Except maybe this person suddenly have a change of mind and they say, okay, now you can go. But what does that mean? In fact, I usually make reference of the United States uh, independence and the best example that should happen anywhere. If I, that, was, that is not what happened in Africa. Mm-hmm. That is why we still have a lot of uh, sort of pseudo government in Africa. They are not really, we are not free in Africa because we, never, we didn't drive away the people who were, who have enslaved us for many, many years. Mm-hmm. For that reason, we just signed contract. But those contracts were not actually prepared by us. Mm-hmm. So what kind of freedom are we talking about? He said the United States fought the British and drove them out. So they, they got their freedom. Freedom is one. It is not given. Have the communities, maybe in the United States, the African diaspora community or the mm-hmm. African-American, have they tried everything they need to do in terms of negotiating, talking, presenting, debating, so that the world needs to know that this is not acceptable? Because I want to believe, I want to sincerely believe that if what is happening in the United States is happening in other countries, like maybe Iraq or Iran, that there will be agencies in the United States that are going to the United Nations to say, hey, we are bringing in freedom, we are bringing in uh, human rights. But also, what, uh, that's what I'm thinking that the people there in the United States should also be qualified for human rights. Well, so, have everything been done yet? Now there is no more. We cannot mm-hmm. do anything again. Have have we exhausted all the options? Uh, I not not really because here's the thing: has I know specifically the United States, the people, not just black people, but people have stood up and said this isn't right, and so that's happened. But I think that in a lot of in a lot of the surrounding communities, one of the things that can be done more effectively is for everyone, because there are strength in numbers. And for a lot of people that live specifically that live in the areas of disadvantage, and there have been a lot of steps made to help to do that, it's starting, it's starting, it's starting to vote, not just in the major elections, but in all the elections, because in all those elections, the people that are being picked are the ones making the decisions. And the people who are being put into office are a lot of times the ones that are either sweeping things behind the rug and, and, or, or doing something about it. And a lot of times for a lot of officials, what do they do? They do the things that a lot of times that their constituents or that the people in their district, that the ones who make the make the noise about. For example, a lot of time in customer service, who really gets who really gets the uh, the the outcome they're looking for? The customer that says, OK, I'll wait for you to call me back. Or the customer says, I want your name, I want your manager's name, I want to talk to your manager, I want to talk to your manager's manager. And they stay on the phone for an hour and a half. And to the point where everybody's like, we got to give this person what they want because they won't get off the phone because they demand it. And it's going to be similar to the same thing. It's just that a, a, a lot more of us are going to have to ensure that we are voting on all the different elections. We know who's coming in. And if they run on something, then we make sure that our demands are being met and we hold them accountable to it. So that's another thing that is being done. And if we continue to keep doing that, that I think that will bring about a lot of change. So, mm. Yeah, yeah. I, be, I believe that. I believe that. The, the voting, at least as long as the system is the way that it is configured, everybody should be represented. But I also remember one time I, I interviewed um, uh, a writer in the U.S. Mm-hmm. They were talking about the voting right in the United States. Uh, so that at a point that there was a certain law that said, uh, said the people that were proposing that, okay, since the African-American cannot finally vote, let's just allow them to vote, but we'll simply not count their vote. So anyway, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit complex sometimes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we can leave that there. Let's move back to your themes. Mm-hmm. 
How do you pick the topic that you want to talk about? How do you say this is the one that is most important for me now to talk about? It all comes down to the story. You know, it's all about it's all about the story. It's about the idea, but then it's all about what story do I want to tell? Is there a story here? What fascinates me about it? Why do I want to talk about this particular um, topic? You know, because um, again, I take a totally different approach when it comes to the television shows that I create. But when it comes to the film, it's, it's really about I want to explore this world, and here's why. You know, because uh, for for example, um, I deserve better. I did that because I, I was. I wanted people to hear whether they agree with it or not. I wanted them to hear why the woman who got abused, why she stayed. And I wanted them to understand the mindset she had, because in, in that in that story, she had two other sisters. They all grew up seeing their mother being abused by their father. And they had three different takeaways. The oldest one, she went into the military specifically. She wouldn't learn how to defend herself specifically because no man was ever going to do that to her. Um, the, the middle sister she has never been able to be in a successful relationship because her fear that that may happen to her and the younger sister she believes that her mother just didn't love her father enough same experience three totally different mindsets and i wanted to explore that and i also wanted to explore a father who had lost his because um um my grandmother she left my grandfather and he the night that she left him and this this is in the, this is actually in the production. The night she left him, um, he came home. He went and got a revolver, and he said, "If you leave, I'm going to blow your brains out." Because she was packing her bags, and she looked him in the eye and she said, "Go ahead." She said, "Because one way or the other, I'm leaving tonight." And he lost his nerve, and she and she and she and she walked out because she got tired of it. But what happens if you're a man who comes from the baby boom era, who comes from the era where you a man is a man and he doesn't need nothing else because he's a man, and you end up going to therapy? And then you end up changing your ways, but then you realize you lost the love of your life, the woman who was perfect for you. And you go to get her back, but now she's happy and she laughs in your face. So now his days has been, he's been in relationships, but it's never been that good because he lost. And now there is no forgiveness. There is no, I'm sorry. There is no second chance. You've lost her for life. And now he has to live with that. And now his son comes to him and he chastises his son. And his son says, how dare you? Because you taught me to be like this. It's something that I had. And also because I've never seen before. I also write things that they may be on topics, we, topics we've seen before, but I don't believe the approach or the story we've seen before. Because to me, then why, why do it? You know, like, I don't want to do something to just, to just do something that we've seen before. I want there to be something that people can talk about or point to that hopefully will enrich their life or give them something to think about to hopefully open their mind. And that's why I do what I do. <laughs> that's powerful. Uh, you know, I, I will say before that, I just watched a few clips of your film. I can already see the power in it. They are really powerful. Mm -hmm. and, and the way you lay out also the argument, it, it, it's a testament to that. Thank well, you for doing what you're doing. No, I appreciate it. Well, you know, when it comes to unbrotherly love, unbrotherly love was, was very different because my older brother... Um, uh, who I think who is a, you know, in society, I'm very, very proud of him as a sibling. Not so much. My older brother treated me terribly when we were going. And this film was basically about having that conversation that he wouldn't have with me because um, I was talking to my now ex-wife and I was just talking. Why did he do that? And I said, hold on. Why am I talking to you? I need to ask him. I need to talk to him. 
And for five years, he wouldn't have the conversation with me. So I wrote the film for me to have the conversation. But then I woke up after someone lost their, their daughter. What if this conversation came at a point where you just lost a child? And you need this closure. But it came in the, because see, in life, things don't always happen when you want it. And so then it became less about my issues with my brother more than about the story, which is what you want it to be. You want it to be less about you. You want it to be about the story. And that's how that film came about and the way it came out. You know, and I'm really happy about it because someone watched the film and they told me that they hadn't talked to their sister in years, but the film inspired them to have a conversation with their sister. And after that happened, I was like, okay, this was the reason I need to do the film. It wasn't about me. It was about people who've been, because if you have a brother or sister that you haven't talked to and you can salvage a relationship, I say salvage it. I would love to have a great relationship with my, with my older brother and with my nephew, but I'm not going to continue to allow them to treat me the way they do. And that's, so I, I'm just not going to do that. But, um, but if people have brothers and sisters, I say, stay close. I say, love each other. I say, come together instead of being apart, if it's possible. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And that is really powerful. I, I believe as a storyteller, when you see that the story that you are telling is making an impact, it's having an impact in people, I believe that that is a good satisfaction for you. Well, another thing for me is that I know pain very well. I mean, the pain that I have felt, the loneliness, the 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 harshness, the uh, how mean people have been, been to me, I could use it in a couple of ways. I could lash out at the world. I could mean, be mean to other people. Or I could put this pen to paper and I can go to work. And that's what I choose to do. I choose to show you the horrors that I've seen. And, and I want you to hold it up to you and say, hey, do you want to be like this? Do you want some of this? Do you want to be treated like this? Well, if not, you know, there is another way. If, for example, it's just like a lot of times when people have done you wrong, they want to run from it. They want to act like it never happened before. But see, because a lot of times no, nobody wants to eat humble pie. But what they don't realize is to deal with the, the to deal with your mess, there's another door there. There's a door to freedom, because if I sit here and if I wronged you and I came back and apologized to you sincerely and I want to make a change, you can talk down to me. You can reject me. You can curse me. You can do whatever you want to do. But what you can't say is that I didn't come back to you to make amends. And if I never do anything else like that to you, you cannot sit here and keep on holding that against me. I mean, yes, you can be upset. Yes, you cannot like me. You can still talk about me, but I came to you and I apologize. And I basically, I've, I've basically given myself, I've, I've shed the, 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 the dishonor or the grief or the humility from myself to now walk on. But a lot of people, they'll do the deed, but they don't want to deal with the deed. And to me, you can't have it both ways. But, you know, and I'm not saying I'm not saying high, I'm not high and righteous because there's people that I've done wrong and not a lot of them. And I went back and told them I apologized to them. And did it feel good? No. The humble pie don't taste good. But at the same time, it's what I believe in. And I can't say I'm going to do be about this and not do that myself. And it was tough. But I apologized to them. I have not repeated the same behavior to them, have not done anything else to them, you know, to to resemble that other behavior. So if they want to come back and tell me how terrible it was, I'm, I'm here to listen. But I have forgiven myself as I've asked them to forgive me. All right. I want to go back again to what I've uh, made mention of before in your story, no? Okay. Uh, of this conversation. Uh, uh, when the relationship is broken, we need to fix it. And we usually start fixing it by talking. 
talking about what has happened. So I want you to tell me a little bit, what is the importance of this in our relationship as human beings? Because we are not perfect. We, we, we must be humble enough to admit that we are not perfect. Mm -hmm. So tell me about this process of healing. Why is it important? I think it's important because uh, not dealing with it can cause you a lot of harm. For, for example... Um, I was someone who was called ugly from third grade up until my sophomore year in high school. And that had a tremendous effect on me. I mean, yes, my mother and grandmother would say, no, you're a cute little boy. You, you know, you look good. Listen, I got my mom and I got my grandma and I got 50 girls over here saying something else. So it's really hard to listen to mom and grandma in that situation. And that trauma there has caused it, it, it the way that I dealt with relationships for a long time was totally different you know but also the reason why healing heal is important because if it, to deal with it is to be alert to how it's driving you how it's triggering you right you know because for you to be hurt because when you're hurt when you're emotionally and that's a decision that so but but going through healing which means that you're dealing with it first of all you're aware of it and then you're taking steps to fix it so that when you go out here, you don't damage anyone or you don't set yourself up to get damaged again. And I think that's why it's important. Mm. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, uh, you're a storyteller. You're an artist mm -hmm. uh, who uses the power of storytelling, not just to entertain people, but also to do the work of healing. Mm -hmm. I think this is what this is what is actually one of the most fascinating things about storytelling. Uh, I don't know if you want to tell me about like, how do you use this power? Because you are powerful mm -hmm. for you to be able to stand on the position of making people feel something. I remember I was interviewing uh, a visual artist in Canada who have worked in uh, many important films. So I was, I was asking him, if you can make somebody cry, you can just make somebody laugh. And the person you are making to cry or making to laugh, know that it is, it is, know that it is not true what you are saying. But yet they cry and they laugh because that is a magic that we do in the storytelling, no? In that, okay, now let me tell you a, a little thing. Uh, I, I've written a book. One time I was presenting it at the university here in Verona, mm -hmm. the, the city where I live. So uh, at the point, uh, a student was looking at me, was like asking, what is going to happen to the character now? And then, okay, I've explained it before, then I re explained it again. I, at the point, I, I told her, listen, this character, actually, I invented it. It's not real. Mm -hmm. It's not a real human being. It's, it didn't really happen. I invented the story. Mm -hmm. um, when I said that, then I sort of demystify the story to the person, and the person didn't feel that much uh, connection anymore. So what I'm saying is that even though we know that the film we are going to watch in the cinema is not real, that it was makeup, it can make us cry, it can make us laugh. Mm -hmm. What does that make you feel as in the position of able to do this, I don't know what you want to call it, this, um, this play or playing on people's emotion, if you want to put it like that? How does that make you feel? Well, I mean, it makes you feel like you did your job because you, you, said, you said it best. I mean, people go into it knowing that this probably isn't real or this was made up. But to have them feel for a character, for to have them invested, because you're competing against a cell phone all the time. You know, people glancing at their phone or getting the text or, or being distracted. So number one, to hold their attention, you know, is a win. But then also to get them to feel, to actually buy into the storage, the fact that they enjoy it, they get something from it or they're emotionally involved in it. 
you know, it, it's a tremendous feeling. And that's what you live for. That's what you pray for. That's what you hope for. Because there is no guarantees, you know, because there are times where it can, it can you can have the best intentions and it just doesn't work. So to to go out there and actually do the job that you're setting for, it's a tremendous feeling, and and nothing is better than and specifically for these films because they they're not the, you know you don't you're not going in here coming out here probably laughing and smiling watching these films you know so they 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 could be tough depending on you know uh, but the great Denzel Washington said it best he said what do you want people to get take from your films he said depends on what they bring to it, and I didn't <laughs> understand what that meant for years but I I kind of understand what it means now but at the same time to get people to feel something, to enjoy the film or to take an opinion away from it is a tremendous film because that's what you're working hard for. That's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, how can people connect with you? Those who want to learn more about what you do, mm -hmm. uh, probably they are listening to you now. Please share with them how they can connect with you. They can connect with me on my website. Uh, it's ronalddillardjr.com. Uh, of course, I'm Ronald Diller Jr. on all platforms, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on um, I think I covered them all. So yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I am Ronald Dilla Jr. So if you type in Ronald Dilla Jr., you'll be able to see me or my productions, or you can uh, DM me. You can send me. You can tweet at me. You know, any of those. You can connect with me on any of those platforms. And of course, on my website, you can basically send a message and come directly to me. And uh, I, you know, I, I pride myself in responding back. All right. Thank you so much for that, there, Ronald. Now, uh, what would be your final thought here? Your final statement here, considering what we have discussed today. Or if it can even be that so, that is something you wanted to say, I did not ask you because it's not possible for me to mm -hmm. ask you everything. Mm -hmm. So please go ahead and do that. Well, uh, for, well, a couple of things. Um, my final thoughts are, are the following. I really believe in uh, treating people as you want to be treated. Do unto others as you as you have them to do to unto you. And the way I live my life is I'm looking to get it right. You know, if I believe that I'm right, I'm defending it to the death. Uh, if I found, found out I'm wrong, I'm coming back and I'm apologizing. You know, I, I want us to really think about things outside of ourselves. I want us to think about others, whether they look like you or look like somebody else. People are people and let's treat them as such. You know, love each other. You know, I, I'm all about togetherness. But at the same time, I'm also always about, you know, making sure there are consequences for actions that just don't make any sense and that just should not be tolerated. I'm hoping that people enjoy these films. I would love to hear your thoughts about them. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, they're going to be seeing, you know, seeing them in a, in a different light, in a different way. And for myself, I just appreciate the fact that I've been able to do films that I was fascinated by, that I wanted to write. And I was able to do them independently and do them myself. And I'm just hoping then the next five to 10 years, these television shows I created, that you'll be able to see them. Uh, and that would be a journey that I've been waiting all my life to take on. So that's what I would say. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it, Ty. Uh, thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate our review overhead podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain over here at one Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.